The story I'm about to read to you I shared in a homily I gave back on Trinity Sunday of 2011, nine years ago. It's from the very beginning of Matthew Kelly's book, Rediscovering Catholicism. I'm going to read it again to you today for reasons that I think should become pretty obvious pretty quickly. You're driving home from work next Monday after a long day. You tune in your radio. You hear a blurb about a little village in India where some villagers have died suddenly, strangely, of a flu that has never been seen before. It's not influenza, but three or four people are dead, and it's kind of interesting, and they are sending some doctors over there to investigate it. You don't think much about it, but coming home from church on Sunday, you hear another radio spot. Only they say it's not three villagers, it's 30,000 villagers in the back hills of this particular area of India, and it's on TV that night. CNN runs a little blurb. People are heading there from the disease center in Atlanta because this disease strain has never been seen before. By Monday morning when you get up, it's the lead story. And it's not just India, it's Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and before you know it, you're hearing this story everywhere. They've now coined it as the mystery flu. The president has made some comment that he and his family are praying and hoping that all will go well over there. But everyone is wondering, how are we going to contain it? That's when the president of France makes an announcement that shocks Europe. He's closing their borders. No flights from India, Pakistan, or any of the countries where this thing has been seen. And that's why that night you're watching a little bit of CNN before going to bed. Your jaw hits your chest when a weeping woman is translated in English from a French news program. There's a man lying in a hospital in Paris dying of the mystery flu. It has come to Europe. Panic strikes. As best they can tell, after contracting the disease, you have it for a week before you even know it. Then you have four days of unbelievable symptoms and then you die. Britain closes its borders, but it's too late. Southampton, Liverpool, Northampton, and it's Tuesday morning when the President of the United States makes the following announcement. Due to a national security risk, all flights to and from Europe and Asia have been canceled. If your loved ones are overseas, I'm sorry, they cannot come back until we find a cure for this thing. Keep in mind, this was written a decade ago. Sounds like it could have been written last week. The story continues. Within four days, our nation has been plunged into an unbelievable fear. People are wondering, what if it comes to this country? And preachers on Tuesday are saying it's the scourge of God. It's Wednesday night and you are at a church prayer meeting when somebody runs in from the parking lot and yells, turn on the radio, turn on the radio. And while everyone in church listens to a little transistor radio with a microphone stuck up to it, the announcement is made. Two women are lying in a Long Island hospital, dying from the mystery flu. Within hours, it seems, the disease envelops the country. People are working around the clock trying to find an antidote. Nothing is working. California, Oregon, Arizona, Florida, Massachusetts. It's as though it's just sweeping in from the borders. And then all of a sudden, the news comes out. The code has been broken. A cure can be found. A vaccine can be made. It's going to take the blood of somebody who hasn't been infected. And so, sure enough, all through the Midwest, all through the channels, 
of emergency broadcasting, everyone is asking, asked to do one simple thing. Go to your downtown hospital and have your blood analyzed. That's all we ask of you. When you hear the sirens go off in your neighborhood, please make your way quickly, quietly, and safely to the hospitals. Sure enough, when you and your family get there late that Friday night, there's a long line. And they've got nurses and doctors coming out and pricking fingers and taking blood and putting labels on it. Your spouse and your kids are out there. And they take your blood and say, wait here in the parking lot, and if we call your name, you can be dismissed and go home. You stand around, scared, with your neighbors, wondering what on earth is going on and if this is the end of the world. Suddenly a young man comes running out of the hospital, screaming. He's yelling a name and waving a clipboard. What, you say? He yells it again. Your son tugs your jacket and says, Daddy, that's me. Before you know it, they've grabbed your boy. Wait a minute, hold on, you say. And they say, it's okay, his blood is clean, his blood is pure. We want to make sure he doesn't have the disease. We think he has the right blood type. Five tenths minutes later, out come the doctors and nurses crying and hugging one another, and some are even laughing. It's the first time you've seen anybody laugh in a week. And the old doctor walks up to you and says, thank you, sir. Your son's blood is perfect. It's clean, it's pure. We can make the vaccine. As the word begins to spread all across the parking lot full of folks, people are screaming and praying and laughing and crying. Then the gray-haired doctor pulls you and your wife aside and says, may we see you for a moment. We didn't realize that the donor would be a minor, and we, we need you to sign a consent form. You begin to sign, and then you see that the box for the number of pints of blood to be taken is empty. Uh, how many pints? That's when the old doctor's smile fades. And he says, We had no idea it would be a little child. We weren't prepared. We need it all. But, but I don't understand. He's my only son. We're talking about the whole world here, sir. Please sign. We, we need to hurry. Can't you give him a transfusion? If we had clean blood, we would. Please, will you please sign? In numb silence, you do. Then they say, would you like to have a moment with him before we begin? Could you walk back? Could you walk back into that room where he sits on a table saying, Daddy, Mommy, what's going on? Could you take his hand and say, Son, your Mommy and I love you and would never ever let anything happen to you that didn't just have to be. Do you understand that? And when that old doctor comes back in and says, I'm sorry, we've got to get started. People all over the world are dying. Could you leave? Could you walk out while, he's, while he is saying, Dad, Mom, Dad, why? Why have you abandoned me? I shared that story with our teenagers and youth group one Thursday night back in 2011. It wasn't until the end that some of them said, Oh, I get it. Now I get it, Father Ray. Do you get it? If you're having trouble, look again at the line, the first line of today's Gospel. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. My brothers and sisters, we cannot understand what it meant for God to give his Son, Jesus, in sacrifice for our sins, except by analogy. And Matthew Kelly's analogy in this story is one of the best I ever have come across in my life. Probably is the best. But remember, it's only an analogy. Believe it or not, the reality of what God did for us is far more radical than what this story conveys. For example, in this story, the son does not die willingly out of pure love. But Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, did. Furthermore, in this story, the boy dies for men and women who are his equals. Jesus died for inferiors, creatures, his creatures. It would be like one of us dying to cure all the dogs in the world of some dread disease. And yet even that doesn't capture the essence of it, because in the hierarchy of being, there's a much greater distance between us and God than there is between us and dogs. hope that doesn't offend anyone, but even if it does, the fact of the matter is it's true. This little story should also help us to understand why God must be our true standard of fatherhood, not our earthly father. A father is called to give his best to his family, like God the Father gave his best to us, his adopted children. But no earthly father does that, because every earthly father is imperfect. For example, I had a great father. I thank God for my dad. I only had him for 14 years. He died at 46 of cancer. But I thank God for those 14 years. But my dad was not perfect. He gave my sister and me lots of love and support and care, but he didn't do those things perfectly. I'm sure there were times, for example, when he disciplined us too much. I'm sure of that. But I'm also sure that there were other times when he didn't discipline us enough. God, our Heavenly Father, on the other hand, is perfectly just. My earthly father also taught us right from wrong by his words and, more importantly, by his deeds. But he didn't do that perfectly. He was a sinner like every earthly father is. God the Father, on the other hand, is perfect. He never violated any of those Ten Commandments that he gave to Moses on those stone tablets we heard about in today's first reading. Some people have a poor image of God because they mistakenly make their earthly fathers, who have failed them in various ways, their standard of fatherhood. And that leads them to look up to God and they say, Lord, you tell me to call you Father. You tell me to love you with all my heart. My earthly dad has hurt me. My earthly dad has let me down in various ways. Well, if that's what fathers are like, God, then that must be what you're like. So I'm sorry, there's no way I can love you so completely and unconditionally, since you're going to probably hurt me too, like my natural father did. That's the wrong perspective. The right perspective is for us to see God as the full expression of what it means to be a father since he gave his all to us in giving us his only begotten Son, and to see our earthly fathers as reflecting the Heavenly Father's love to us. 
So instead of saying, God the Father must be like my earthly dad, it's more proper to say, my dad is a little bit like God the Father in all the ways that he's good to our family, in all the ways he's good to us as his children. So as we prepare to celebrate Father's Day in a few weeks, we should thank the Lord for the ways our earthly fathers have reflected his love to us over the years, God's love however imperfectly. And then on this Trinity Sunday, we need to ask God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit to help our earthly fathers to reflect his love even more perfectly, even more completely in the future, if we're blessed to still have our earthly dads with us.